good morning and welcome to the book cult podcast my name is vince valella and it is no longer morning it is 12 11 uh, we're doing okay good morning adrian good morning vince uh today we're gonna be going through isaac asimov's the last question this is a science fiction short story from 1956 it was originally released serially in small sections let me just hop in there. We forgot we have a new naming function for our podcast. So oh, this yeah. is episode 1.0. Nice. Thank you for orienting to that too. Thank you for orienting us to that. I'm going to hop in and just give you the first sentence and start us off here. The last question was asked for the first time half in jest on May 21st, 2061. At a time when humanity first stepped into the light, the question came about as a result of a $5 bet over highballs, and it happened this way. Are highballs a drink? Yes, that's correct. Okay. So a highball is like a type of glass. A low ball is that like oh. short, fat tumbler. Okay. A highball is like a highball. Yeah, glass. I did not. I was wondering what they were doing with that. Yeah, what they're doing is drinking. So Alexander Adele and Bertram Lupov were two of the faithful attendants of Multivac. As well as any human beings could, they knew what lay behind the cold, clicking, flashing face, miles and miles of face, of that giant computer. They had at least a vague notion of the general plan of relays and circuits that had long since grown past the point where any single human could possibly have a firm grasp of the whole. Multivask, multivast, excuse me, multivac was a self-adjusting <laughs> and self-correcting. It had to be, for nothing human could adjust and correct it quickly enough, or even adequately enough. So Adele and Lupov attended the monstrous, monstrous, excuse me, giant only lightly and superficially, yet as well as any men could. They fed it data, adjusted questions to its needs, and translated the answers that were issued. Certainly they, and all others like them, were fully entitled to share in the glory that was multivax. Nice. There's a lot of cool points in there. Um, so the first one is just, I love this sentence. Uh, they knew what lay behind the cold, clicking, flashing face. So that's kind of interesting because, and actually this is a theme you see in a lot of science fiction from the 50s and 60s. In some ways they were extremely visionary. So they kind of saw into the future and predicted how things would be. But in other ways, they were unable to see beyond their current paradigm. So in... Asimov's age, computers had much more machinery, like they had a much more mechanical aspect to them. And so he describes this computer as clicking when, you know, we have computers which are radically more powerful than anything they ever experienced, but our computers don't have like, you know, giant cogs and machines moving around. So his, his idea that a, a supercomputer would click and have all these mechanics is sort of entertainingly outdated in the same way that uh, in 2001, A Space Odyssey, they have, you know, ships that can travel the galaxy, but things still run on ticker tape. Like he describes having like ticker tape reels where they've recorded everything, which is a hilariously outdated way to do it. You know, I think my computer clicked when I was a kid. <laughs> like, I'm, I don't know if it was supposed to click, but I'm pretty sure it clicked. Yeah, that sounds like something you did to your computer. <laughs> <laughs> the fan I, just had stuff, so much stuff in it. Yeah, I would not trust you with a computer. Um, the other the other point I want to make really quickly is just that he's, he's starting to introduce the idea of AI and machine intelligence taking over what human beings can't do. And that's a really relevant point today. Uh, we're looking at human, sorry, when you talk about uh, global climate change or problems that require massive data processing and the ability to see huge patterns. 
um, we're sort of ceding that territory to machine intelligence. And so this is kind of like a foreshadowing of that experience that we're having now. <clears throat> so let's find out what Adele and Delupov are doing. Let's do it. They had a bottle with them, and their only concern at the moment was to relax in the company of each other and the bottle. It's amazing when you think of it, said Adele. His broad face had lines of weariness in it, and he stirred his drink slowly with a glass rod, watching the cubes of ice slur clumsily about. Nice. So I really enjoy this passage because... To me, it shows um, what's kind of at the heart of the scientific enterprise. So right now, when we think of science, I think we think of uh, people in white lab coats doing ex probably like chemistry experiments with Bunsen burners. Uh, but what I think is awesome about the scientific revolution is that it comes down to these really simple, almost like innocuous and offhand questions. Like human curiosity sparks the desire to know about things and how they work. Um, and through the scientific method, we can discover what those things actually are. So there's something beautifully human about that that I really, really enjoy. Um, they just kind of stumble on this question and they're like, huh, I wonder what that's all about. And then it sparks this whole realm of inquiry. So let me let me set the stage before we go forward here. They're, they're celebrating because Multivac, this very powerful, powerful computer, has just solved the energy crisis on Earth. Mm, nice. People were worried about coal and uranium running out, but this computer and the technicians that are running it created a way to harness energy from the sun mm. and humanity they're really stoked about it that everyone's celebrating and these two guys are like the primary technicians of this computer are now stepping out of the limelight and just relaxing and hanging out right um so they're down in like a bunker somewhere hanging out with this computer <laughs> drinking yeah <clears throat> and i think um that's a really common science fiction trope right is the um the mastery of fusion so most science fiction universes are built on the premise that humanity has mastered some sort of massive energy production, mm. the likes of which we can't conceive of. You know, any any universe that has like galactic expansion, you have to at least put forth a proposition for how we gathered the energy to do that. And most of them um, sort of found their idea on some sort of technological discovery that allows fusion. Right. And there's no way around. Right. <clears throat> so talking about energy... Mm. Uh, all the energy we can possibly ever use for free. They're referring to their sun collecting machine. Right. Enough energy if we wanted to draw on it to melt all earth into a big drop of impure liquid iron and still never miss the energy so used. Mm. All the energy we could, we could ever use forever and forever and forever. Lupov cocked his head sideways, Lupov, that scoundrel. He's like the Swede. Um, he had a trick of doing that when he wanted to be contrary. And he wanted to be contrary now, partly because he had to carry the ice and the glassware. Not forever, he said. Oh, hell, just about forever. Till the sun runs out, Bert. That's not forever. All right, then. Billions and billions of years. Ten billion, maybe. Are you satisfied? Lupov put his finger through his thinning hair as though to reassure himself that some was still left, and slipped gently on his own drink. Ten billion years isn't forever. Yeah, I think that's interesting, because when I first read this, I, I kind of glassed through this sentence a little bit. Um, and Asimov's characters are really interesting, so I've read Foundation and a couple of other Asimov books, and... He has an older style of writing, and I think his characters aren't as 
poetically richly described as more modern science fiction, like something like William Gibson. Um, but if you dig in, if you kind of like listen to the prose, they, they are these really rich characters and it's really cool. Like you get a sense of them having a deep relationship and the sort of quirky way he describes him checking for, to see if he still has hair on his head. Um, the characters are really rich. They just aren't described quite in the terms that I would expect from a modern science fiction book. So it's really fun to dig into this and see the detail under the surface. See, I think one of the reasons why Asimov does that is the characters aren't as important. So yes. we'll see as we go through this. This is a, a book in seven acts. Right. And they're, they're small little snippets. Um, kind of what's that? There was a famous book that came out recently that did that, um, where they jumped through time. Unfortunately, I don't know. We'll, have to, we'll have to look it up later. Yeah. Um, anyway, <clears throat> there, we only interact with the characters for short little acts, and we're right. interacting with different characters each time. Um, so I think the, what he's using the characters to tell the story, not use the story to tell about the characters. Good point. And in a way, I think you could argue that it's the main character of this story is humanity as an entire species, not anyone. With these not Lupov. Right. And that's interesting because it kind of, in a way, it pushes me away. I, ha I have a harder time becoming invested because as a human, I only have one life. Mm -hmm. And so I relate to human beings and their singular lives. Well, you might not have one life if we live long enough, as we'll see in the story. <laughs> right. But yeah, it's it's interesting that he's trying to construct this story of humanity. <clears throat> so they're arguing uh, about when the sun energy will run out. Mm. Um, and they're, they're talking about it. And then Lupov's eyes snapped open. You're thinking we'll switch to another sun when ours is done, aren't you? I'm not thinking. Sure you are. You're weak on logic. That's the trouble with you. You're like the guy in this story who was caught in a sudden shower and ran to a grove of trees and got under one. He wasn't worried, you see, because he figured when one tree got wet through, he would just get under another one. That, that's, a, that's a problem that we don't deal with very often. Um, I love this, though, because it sounds like a conversation you and I would have. <laughs> I get it, said Adele. Don't shout. When the sun is done, the other stars will be gone, too. Darn right they will, muttered Lupov. Um, so this is him talking about the idea that even when the sun runs out, we're switching to another one is only a temporary solution. Right. Yeah, he's really talking about um, the maximum limitation of the life of the universe. Okay. So they talk about it. They talk about how um, things are going to run out. But there, there's hope in this conversation where they say, maybe things can ch change someday. Maybe we can fix this problem. So these two drunk computer technicians are in a basement with a computer. So they decide to do what I guess drunk technicians to do. And let's just go back to the text. Will mankind one day without the net expenditure of energy be able to restore the sun to its full youthfulness even after it has died of old age? They're theorizing on questions because they want to ask multivac. Mm. Or maybe it could be put more simply like this. How can the net amount of entropy of the universe be massively decreased? Multivac fell dead and silent. The slow flashing of lights ceased. The distant sounds of clicking relays ended. Then, just as the frightened technicians felt they could hold their breath no longer, there was a sudden spring to life of the teletype attached to the portion of Multivac. Five words were printed, and this is in all caps, 
insufficient data for meaningful answer. No bet, whispered Lupov. They left hurriedly. By the next morning, the two plagued with the throbbing head and cottony mouth had forgotten the incident. So they they were arguing in this basement about whether energy is going to run out or not. They drunkenly asked the computer. It's like asking Alexa something when you're drunk. Um, and then they left and completely forgot about it. And that ends act one of the story. Nice. I just want to call out one thing in here, which I think is pretty fun. Uh, so I'm going to go to the book here. Adele was just drunk enough to try, just sober enough to be able to phrase the necessary symbols and operations into a question, which in words might have corresponded to this. And then he goes on to a question. So my point isn't about the question. It's about this kind of, this ties into the theme of old school science fiction people being both visionary and then unable to anticipate the future. So this computer is so brilliant that it invented fusion. Right? Like it has invented a fusion drive which can send humanity to the stars. But it can't do natural language processing. Like you can't just talk to it normally. You still have to memorize a set of symbols and commands. And then it responds to you with like teletype. <laughs> like you can't just talk to you. That's it. Because like when I was reading this, I kind of just glossed over those parts because right. I didn't understand what they were even talking about. Right. Yeah, I find that really interesting. And actually, it's really relevant because right now, one of the big things that app and technology companies are doing is working on natural language processing. So that's about, you know, can you speak to a computer and then have it derive meaning just from the sound of your voice? And it's actually interesting that we're so good at this and it's so embedded in who we are as humans that we just don't really think about how complex that is. And yet computer scientists who can build, you know, supercomputers that can model atmosphere systems, they still, computers still cannot functionally understand the human language at all. They're not even close. And so what's really interesting is it's interesting to wonder, like, is natural language processing, like, actually harder than fusion? Is that what mm. he's kind of implying? Or did he just kind of miss that because the technology of his time, you know, didn't really deal with it? A lot of interesting questions going on there. So let's move on to Act 2. Yep. Because I don't know the answers to any of those questions. <laughs> awesome. So <laughs> Act 2, um, we are now in the future further. Um, Jared... Jaredine and Jaredette, one and two, watched the starry picture of the viz plate change as the passage through hyperspace was completed in the non-time lapse. At once, the even powdering of the stars gave way to the predominance of a single bright shining disc, the size of a marble centered on the viewing screen. That's X-23, said Jared confidently. His thin hands clamped tightly behind his back and the knuckles whitened. Nice. I think what's kind of interesting is you might think, listeners, that we've skipped a passage in between here, but in fact we haven't. It's just like a hard cut between the end of that sentence and the start of the next one. There is no transition. There's no framing. There's no anything. Like the the scientist scene just ends and then we're in the spaceship with, you know, the Jared the squad. <laughs> Um, oh my god, I love these names. And that's kind of interesting because there are a couple of different books that I wanted to bring up. So Isaac Asimov's Foundation series starts with the book Foundation. Um, and he's telling the story of a galactic empire that rises and decays over time. And you see this same thing. So you get invested in a character and then there's just a hard cut to like a completely different era. And that's kind of what we were talking about before. You, you have trouble as a human being... Um, becoming invested in the whole thing because you don't get to just like live it through one character. I think we're attached to 
the daily and singular stories of a single human being. But he's really trying to get you to have a vision of the whole species, which is quite difficult to do. And one of my favorite examples of that is a book called Canticle for Leibowitz. And they cut through three or four main characters. It's sort of this post-apocalyptic insanity book. It's really, really great. I wonder if during the, the time period when this was written, mm-hmm. if that was something seen as desirable mm-hmm. to have the setting be the character, like the primary interest of the story, or if Asimov was just sacrificing his what he knew audience would be, in, would be interested in to tell the story he wanted to tell. That's a really interesting question, and I think it ties into bigger movements in the human species. So now we're facing problems that are global in scale in a way that human beings of the past have never dealt with. Um, we're interconnected in a way, and our actions you know, have downstream effects, like the, the Fukushima disaster has effects on the ocean, which have effects on you know, the coast of South America and the coast of the Americas. We're all dealing with this globalized world. We live as a species now for the first time. So I think this is a really interesting kind of forerunner to that, like, can we think about ourselves as a species? Because actually it's quite mm-hmm. hard. You know, I think and we talk about it in daily way. Yeah, exactly. This is kind of one of the beginnings of people conceptualizing and telling stories of the human species as opposed to just a tribe or a person or a country, a nation state, something like that. Anyway, back to the Jareds. <laughs> yeah. Enough of that hopeful talk. <laughs> the little Jaredettes, both girls, had experienced the hyperspace passage for the first time in their lives and were self-conscious over the momentary sensation of his insidiousness. I don't know what that word means. Um, inside outness. Oh, inside outness. They need a hyphen there. I think that's um, a word he made up. Okay. No, inside outness. That makes sense. I mean, the word makes sense. I'm not sure it's like a Webster's dictionary word. Shh. Look it up. <laughs> Silence. <laughs> <laughs> they buried their giggles and chased one another wildly about their mother screaming. We've reached X23. We've reached X23. We've quiet, children," said Jaredine sharply. "Are you sure, Gerard?" So they're, they've reached the planet, they're excited, <clears throat> um, and the kids are running around, they're in the spaceship, imagine like family road trip. <clears throat> and then Jared, Jared's reflecting on his computer, because remember we had, what was the computer, we had multivac in yeah. the first scene. So Jared scarcely knew a thing about the thick rod of metal, except that it was called a microvac. Nice. That one asked it questions if one wished, and if one did not, it still had its task of guiding the ship to a pre-ordered destination of feeding on engines from the various subgalactic power stations of computing the equations for the hyperspace jumps, Jared and his family had only to wait and live in the comfortable residence quarters of the ship. Nice. And I think this both speaks to a common science fiction trope and also a pattern that we see in our real lives. And that's, you know, we sort of talked about human beings are using machine intelligence to engage with problems that the human mind is not equipped to deal with. And as that happens, we're losing track of the ability to deal with our technologies. So my dad, when he was younger, he used to tell me he had a motorcycle and he had a couple different cars and he would always learn everything about the engines and he'd be able to take apart the whole engine. He did all of his own auto work. Now, I'm not saying everybody from his generation did that, but I think it was a much more common practice. Like, it was much more possible to know everything about a car, for example, because it was a purely mechanical apparatus. Now, 
you have to know all of that mechanical stuff that my father knew, and you have to know all of the computer systems in the car. So you'd have to be able to program all of the computer systems in the car in addition to doing all the mechanical work. So cars have kind of gone out of outside the range of technology that a single person can handle. And that's kind of like what he's that's discussing. Here. Exactly. It's already happening to us. And this is microvac is an even further kind of vision of that where microvac runs their entire spaceship, everything about Yeah, they just going. chill. Yeah, they literally do nothing. Like the humans are responsible for nothing other than, you know, telling it where to go and what they want. You know, I, I was trying to this section, this act really resonates with me. Mm. Um, and I was trying to figure out why, and I just realized you talking about your father is this is an immigrant story. Totally. This is like the story that we all got told when we learned about the melting pot. Um, like this is, that's why this story seemed so comfortable. Mm. Um, which like immigrants, uh, they're scared to go to X-23. Right. Um, so they're given Jared, the father, some, some crap. Um, so he says, why for Pete's sake, demanded Jared. We had nothing there back on earth. We'll have everything on X-23. You won't be alone. You won't be a pioneer. There are over a million people on the planet already. Good Lord, our great-grandchildren will be looking for new worlds because X-23 will be overcrowded. Nice. That brings up another common space trope. So if anyone's read Hyperion by Dan Simmons, that's a 1989 space opera that he wrote. Um, there's this kind of idea of human beings expanding from Earth to become a galactic society. And part of that is the rebirth of pioneers. Mm, so, the frontier mindset exactly space pioneers so it kind of ties back to what we were talking about with the willows with that fear of the unknown and the relationship uh, with the frontier but it's on a much grander scale right this is a galactic scale pioneer mindset i wonder if this work is specifically american if the, if asimov hmm. was born in another country another cultural context oh. if he would have different like if this was in france right they don't seem to have the same pioneer mythology that we do so maybe it would have been written very different. Maybe for one of our next pieces we look at, we should try to find science fiction from another from country. France. Yeah, that'd be not awesome. <laughs> from France. Science fiction from France. Maybe we should find some Swedes or some Hungarian oh, work. Oh yeah, I'm ready for that. So they're going to XK23, <clears throat> um, and Jaredet says Jaredet is the child or the wife, I believe. I'm sorry, I'm confusing all the Jareds. <laughs> Our microvac is the best microvac in the world. I think so too, said Jared, tossing her hair. It was a nice feeling to have microvac, uh, to have a microvac of your own, and Jared was glad he was part of his generation and no other. Nice. Now I think I think this is part is interesting because you saw in the previous story how they they're uh, what was it called micro? No, not. What the was the, multivac? Multivac. Yeah. How multivac saved the world. It right. was the best computer ever. Right. And now they have this, like, they're on a dinky little ship. You can assume there's lots of these because there's already a bunch of people in X-23. Right. But they love their computer. Totally. Um, so that, like, anthropomorphizing is really interesting. Anthropomorphizing? Yes. Words. Anthropomorphizing. <laughs> yeah, and I think it's also really funny. I just want to point out. <laughs> she says, our microvac is the best microvac in the world. <laughs> even though they're on a spaceship and they're just coming out of deep space travel, <laughs> which I just kind of love. Oh, because you're assuming world is a planet. Well, it's just, I mean, like, that's, it's interesting. This is a human expression, right? You say, I'm the best thing in the world, or this is the best microphone in the world, <laughs> because we have the experience of having a singular world, right? So that measurement makes sense to us. But this is a galactic society, and they've been in space travel. It's not like they're on a planet. And so she's referring to this as the best in the world, even though 
they're not on a world. That I guess it really is the sense. best in their world. Right. Oh, yeah, that's interesting. Is it a physical world or is it a <laughs> metaphysical world? <laughs> So many stars, so many planets, sighed Geraldine, busy with her own thoughts. I suppose families will be going out to new planets forever, the way we are now. Not forever, said Jared with a smile. It will stop someday. And you can notice the parallels to the first act here, mm-hmm. where someone proposes an idea and then crushes it. Um, what? We'll get more into that later. It will all stop someday, but not for billions of years. Not maybe many billions. Even the stars run down, you know. Entropy must increase. What's entropy, Daddy? Shrilled Jaredet the second. Um, so then the the child becomes upset about the idea of entropy and everything in the world eventually becoming cold and dark and silent. Um, so the the father uh, reconciles this problem by asking their microvac um, to calm the daughter. Ask the microvac, wailed Jared at the first. Ask him how to turn the stars on again. Go ahead, said Jaredine. It will quiet them down. Jared at the second was beginning to cry also. Jared shrugged. Now, now, honeys, I'll ask microvac. Don't worry, he'll tell us. He asked the microvac, adding quickly, print the answer. Jared cupped the strip of strip or thin cellufilm and said cheerfully, See, the microvac says it will take care of everything when the time comes, so don't worry. Foreshadowing. Geraldine said, And now, children, it's time for bed. We'll be in our new home soon. Jared read the words on the cellufilm again before destroying it. Insufficient data for meaningful answer. He shrugged and looked at the viz plate. X23 was just ahead. Oh, I love that he... I love that he lies. Yeah. It's to protect so his family. Right. And entropy is a big thing here. <laughs> I think it's kind of fun. It has this kind of like, it's the final countdown feel to it. And there's like... A... We're going to get sued. No, it's fine. <laughs> um, and actually, this ties into the previous book that we read in episode zero about the willows. If you remember on the willows, <laughs> the willows, <laughs> in the willows, they're on an island. They're trapped on an island. And the river is slowly washing away with this island. And that creates a sort of ticking time bomb feel where they're under a time pressure. And so this is like this, but it's... Um, it creates movement. Yeah, and it creates a drive forward in the story. You know that um, the end of the story is limited. And you know it's coming. It's on the way. Like the clock has been set. But it's it's neat because it's our story. Right. Yeah, it is us in a way that the, the willows isn't. Like entropy is real. Yes. Like golden sheep gods transcending into the heavens. Sorry, if you haven't listened to the first podcast, that might make more sense. Um, Those things we can imagine, but I'm fairly certain don't exist. So I resent the idea that you think they don't exist, but I understand from your your doubting perspective. My my limited human perspective. (laughs) You're obviously not enlightened enough yet. All right, talking about enlightenment, let's hop into act three. Um, So again, hard cut. Fast forward uh, many years in the future. Mm. Um, VJ23X of Lameth stared into the black depths of the three-dimensional small-scale map of the galaxy and said, Are we ridiculous? I wonder in being so concerned about the matter. MQ17J of Nikron shook his head. I think not. You know the galaxy will be filled in five years at the present rate of expansion. 
Nice. So there's there's some interesting naming conventions that you can note here. So the first round of people, they had names like Adele. And in the next one, they have a name, but it's everyone in the family's named the same thing. Yes. And now they've just gone to like straight up codes. But they interestingly have appended the place, right? So to me that implies that there's another VJ23X of another place, right? So this is VJ23X of Lameth. But then there's going to be VJ23X of some other place too. And so you can see over time, the naming conventions for the people are starting to change. And part of that is because they're just so many more humans. You can't just like pick a name and call it good, right? You're like, oh, I'm Adrian, a bunch of other people are Adrian. That's fine on a planet of 7 billion people. But when you have, you know, hundreds of billions of people, that means there's a ton of people named Adrian and that's a problem. I think it's interesting too, that rather than make Lameth a code, they choose a, like a cold, hard code. And then of Lameth, which has more meaning. VJ23X, to me, and I'm assuming, probably doesn't have any cultural value. Right. Like, those are letters. Yeah. But of Lameth means something. Like, Lameth could be a place where there's customs and culture and feelings and traditions that you would know when you interact with VJ23X. Right. And so they're still, even though they're moving towards a more efficient numerical system for naming, they still want to retain something human. Right? Yeah. Like, at this point, they're still trying to retain something of, like, no, I'm a person, I have a culture, I'm from here. They sort of emphasize that uniqueness. So anyway. But they're losing it. MQ and VJ um, are on a mission for the Galactic Council. They're trying to scout out new worlds. VJ23X side. Space is infinite. 100 billion galaxies are there for the taking. More. 100 billion is not infinite. And it's getting less infinite all the time. Consider. 20,000 years ago, mankind first solved the problem of utilizing stellar energy. And a few centuries later, interstellar travel became possible. It took mankind a million years to fill one small world, and then only 15,000 years to fill the rest of the galaxy. Now the population doubles every 10 years. VJ23X interrupted. We can thank immortality for that. So then they talk about how galactic AC, it's now galactic AC, bear in mind, um, <clears throat> Uh, has allowed this to happen. And then they talk about how old they are. Um, so MQ17J says, how old are you? I'm 223. And you? I'm still under 200. But to get back to my point, population doubles every 10 years. Once this galaxy is filled, we'll have filled another, sorry, once this galaxy is filled, we will have filled another in 10 years. Another 10 years and we'll have filled two more. Another decade, four more. In a hundred years, we'll have filled a thousand galaxies. In a thousand years, a million galaxies. In 10,000 years, the entire known universe. Then what? And this is really fun because although this seems kind of unimaginable, that, that's for a reason because we are not good at imagining logarithmic or quadratic processes. There's a really cool point that someone made to me recently. When you're playing chess, right? seems like it's pretty linear. You, know, you can move one piece in a certain way every turn. Mm -hmm. But if you examine the possible arrangement of pieces on the board, like how many possible ways are there for the chess game to progress, once each player has made one move, so just the first pawn that you put out or a knight or whatever, there are 400 possible positions that the board could be in after each person has just made one move. And then after each person has made two moves, there are 72,084 potential configura configurations of the chessboard. 
And then after each person has made a third move, there are over 9 million potential arrangements of the chessboard. And so I find that really interesting because it just demonstrates very concretely how our minds are not good at engaging with something that's quadratic or logarithmic. And this is kind of the same thing, right? Because it's taken us so long to fill up this one planet that I think when I think of, you know, spreading ourselves to the entire universe, it's just, it's inconceivable for me. So I really enjoy that. <clears throat> we should, have you ever heard that deck of cards thing? Mm. We shuffle, if you shuffle a deck of cards, you know what I'm talking about? Shuffling? Yeah. I've so there's like, uh, there's the, it's talking about the <laughs> amount of atoms in the known universe uh -huh. and how if you shuffle a deck of cards, the chance that you will reshuffle it again and have it be in the exact same order is the same as like one in however many atoms there are in the universe. That's awesome. I'm probably butchering that. I'm, yeah, probably. I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure the, <laughs> but there's something like that. Yeah, that sounds fun. All right. Anyway, um, VJ and MQ are arguing about the population, and then they start arguing about energy. Most of it's wasted, after all. Our own galaxy alone pours out a thousand sun power units a year, and we only use two of those. Granted, but even with 100% efficiency, we only stave off the end. Our energy requirements are going up in a geometric progression even faster than our population. We'll run out of energy even sooner than we run out of galaxies. A good point. A very good point. Nice. And I really, um, I found this point poignant. So he says, we only stave off the end when he's talking about energy efficiency. And I think it's kind of interesting to wonder, like we all know we're doomed, right? Every human being knows they're going to die someday. And then the species as a whole also knows that we're going to be extinct. Like there's no possible way that humanity is an eternal force. We're all dying. The species is all dying. And yet we all kind of go out and live our lives successfully in spite of that knowledge, mm -hmm. which I just find really interesting. Like, we all know we're doomed humans. But I don't think we know that. Like, in the way that we know the sky is blue, like, it's not something I internalize. Right, which is, in I mean, we must be adapted to do that, right? Because if you if you <laughs> had a concrete <laughs> physical experience of your own death all the time, we would all just hide in the corner and, you know, drink ourselves. Would we, or maybe we'd be comfortable with it. Like, maybe we could frame that as not a bad thing. I think if you truly understood the eternity of your non-existence, you would be so terrified and bent really? by that that you would, you would not live. Like, you could not live with that. Really? Definitely. I think it's actually exactly parallel to what H.P. Lovecraft and um, Algernon Blackwood are talking about in The Willows, this kind of elder gods or otherworld beings. Um, I, I think we can't truly understand the idea of being extinguished for eternity. I think if you truly like knew that, I think you would just fall apart completely. I think you need to be more present. <laughs> I think you need to be more enlightened So the elder gods. <clears throat> MQ and VJ are arguing about entropy, and they have their galactic AC. The galactic AC is a the computer. It's the evolution of this computer. It is now connected um, on one planet. Um, there's one planet that has this whole computer on it, and it links to every person's personal galactic AC. So they pull the galactic AC out of their pocket and ask it, We both know entropy can't be reversed. You can't turn smoke. You, you can't turn smoke and ash back into a tree. Do you have trees on your world? Asked MQ-17J. The sound of the galactic AC startled them into silence. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, before that, they ask the, the galactic AC, can entropy be reversed? They give this example about the tree. 
<clears throat> and then the galactic AC um, startled them into silence. Its voice came thin and beautiful out of the small AC contact on the desk. It said, there is insufficient data for a meaningful answer. VJ23X said, see, the two men thereupon returned to the question of the report they were to make out to the Galactic Council. Nice. I really love this image personally. He says, you can't turn smoke and ash back into a tree. And I think that's beautiful. And it, it takes us back to this sense of valuing life. So everything's been sort of expanding to this point. You hear about billions and billions of human beings filling up the stars. And there's a way in which that kind of devalues human life and life in general. Um, but that there's something beautiful about the fact that they, they have fusion drive, right? Like they can do things that we can't even conceive of. And yet there's this fact that a single life is so complex and so unique that if you destroy it, it can't be rebuilt. You can't really rebuild a person. And I think that's parallel to the to the galaxy and to entropy in this. So, so far, we're on, we're on Act 3 right now. We're moving into Act 4. There's been a general pattern. There's been two characters introduced. The two characters are conversing. They talk about problems, whether they're energy, population, um, new worlds to colonize, etc. And then they, they always have been asking, AC, can entropy be reversed? And we're going to see that again. Um, but... When you were talking about humans, this is interesting because Act 4 takes a little different turn. Z Prime's mind spanned the universe, spanned, excuse me, Z Prime's, Z Prime's mind spanned the new galaxy with a faint interest in the countless twists of stars that powdered it. He had never seen this one before. Will he ever see all of them? So many of them, each with its load of humanity but a load that was almost dead weight. More and more, the real essence of man, men, was to be found out here in space. Minds, not bodies. The immortal bodies remained back on the planets in suspension over the eons. Sometimes they roused from material activity, but that was growing rarer. Few new individuals were coming into existence to join the incredibly mighty throng, but what, but what matter? There was little room in the universe for new individuals. Z Prime was aroused out of his revere upon coming reverie. reverie. Sorry, yeah. his reverie upon coming across the wispy tendrils of another mind. I am Z Prime," said Z Prime. "And you? I am D Sub One. Your galaxy." So he, they're flying. There's their bodies are on these planets, and they're flying around in space with their minds somehow. Mm. Um, and they come upon Z Prime comes upon D Sub One, um, and they start talking about uh, how all galaxies are the same. However, um, nice, and I think this is kind of cool. There's um, there's a Lovecraft story called I believe Fungi from Ugoth. And in that one, these weird like crab funguses come down from outer space and they capture this guy and they rip his brain out of his um, body and then they sort of cram his brain into like a canister and then they send it like, so they're always kind of horrifying, but then it turns out they're just trying to free him. They want to free his mind to like elope into the galaxy with them. Mm -hmm. And so at the end of it, he like, he has this experience of just flying almost like a disembodied spirit out into the universe with them. And this is kind of like that. There's also a book by Kurt Vonnegut called The Sirens of Titan. And it's about these energy beings that can actually um, flow through the walls. And it's this whole weird story about like energy beings flying around and uh, just interacting with each other. And I wonder if it all kind of comes back to this. I wonder where that trope came in. But this, yeah. this is a very early version of it, which I find interesting. 
It's almost like being Superman. Yeah, totally. Or like a spirit. Yeah. It's an interesting, it's an area where I feel like horror and fantasy and science fiction all kind of intersect in this weird way. Or the, with the spirit, like the right. idea of being a spirit. Right. And actually we're about to get some, uh, some religious overtones coming in here. Well, this is already, it's, uh, it's acknowledging that what is important or what is you is outside of your body. That's really interesting. Yeah. It's cool how this book transitions from a sort of like computer science and science oriented thing, um, into a more spiritual thing as you get in later. This, this, this isn't science. Hmm? This isn't science. <laughs> I don't. I don't understand. Um, so they're arguing about uh, galaxies hmm. and wondering if all galaxies are the same. And then D sub one replies, "Not all galaxies. On one particular galaxy, the race of man must have originated. That makes it different." Z prime said, "On which one? I cannot say. The universal AC would know." Shall we ask him? I'm suddenly curious. Nice. Yeah, and actually on the next page, there's an interesting little passage here. Z Prime knew of only one man whose thoughts had penetrated within sensing distance of universal AC. So we're talking about going to ask the AC a question. And he reported only a shining globe, two feet across, difficult to see. And I like this because we were talking about the transition into spirituality. So this person represents a kind of messiah figure here. This is the one person who's ever talked to the universal AC. And now the universal AC is kind of this, um, almost like a magic presence, like a magic spiritual presence. So you're starting to hear some religious overtones filtering in as we come to the end of the story. See, I didn't picture when I read the, cause this section you just read is very interesting and it struck me also. I saw it more of like a traveler, like imagine we're living in 1950s and we met someone who had seen the Taj Mahal. Mm -hmm. And they're like, so I, I saw this. And it might be the only person in our town that had ever seen this. Mm. And they're sharing this information with us. And we, we know it exists. We, we could go there because they could just ask they see where it is probably right. and go there. Mm. But they, they don't really care. Or maybe they don't have the ability to. I think it harkens to that idea of there are things, other places that you just can't see easily. Indeed. <laughs> Thanks. Deep insight there from Vila. <laughs> it's quite deep. About as deep as the universe. Um, so there, they ask AC, um, what the original universe or what the original galaxy of man was. And it points it out. And it also points out that it is gone. And they're lamenting these two zephyrs of consciousness, um, are lamenting that the original galaxy of man is gone and they wonder what will happen to them. So then they ask, um, well, let's just start here. The stars are dying. The original star is dead. They must all die. Why not? But when all energy is gone, our bodies will finally die, and you and I with them. It will take billions of years. I do not wish it to happen even after a billion years. Fear of death. Mm. Universal AC. How many stars... <laughs> how many stars be kept from dying? D sub 1 said in amusement. You're asking it how entropy might be reversed in direction. And the universal AC answered, there is yet insufficient data for a meaningful answer. <laughs> nice. And I love this because uh, as, as the story progresses, humanity's agency is dying. So even though humans become ultra powerful in a way, um, they basically become zombies locked in boxes and their, their consciousness flows out into the universe and they have these experiences, but they don't really have the agency that they used to anymore. And as AC's agency is rising, um, 
it begins to have more complex conversations with people. So previously, all the people discussed and they decided where to drive the spaceships and what to do. And then when they wanted to know the answer to something or they wanted the AC to drive a spaceship somewhere, they would ask it to do that. And then it would just do that. Whereas now it, they're having complex conversations and AC is actually kind of educating them and having a full on dialogue with them. So you can see that the, the positions are sort of inversely proportional. As humanity is settling and dying out, AC is ascendant and rising to a position of greater agency. Do you think, so when we were talking about the Jaredettes, mm. they were talking about how they were so happy to be alive at this time when they would be alive, not, they would not want to be alive in any other time. Right. Um, do you think do you think this world that we saw with Z Prime, this iteration of humanity, would be nice? Like would you like that? In a way. Um I also I also think not. So I I love to do things with my body. Like I love the fact that we go to the gym and work out uh -huh. all the time. Um that's one of the greatest joys that I have. And I think these people they get to see the universe, right? They get to fly around the universe, they live for billions of years, that's super awesome. Um, but I think they're missing something too. And that's the experience of being an embodied human being. And I think it's the same thing we miss when we try to... Oh, so you're saying our limitations are what make life enjoyable. Exactly. And I think every age has its own, its own unique special flavor and also is missing things that other ages have. And what's beautiful about our age is that we get to have these embodied experiences still, and yet we have a great technological progress. Hmm. So I'm not sure I would like it. Um, the, the idea of living forever sounds nice. Although, you know, it sounds nice. And it sounds actually boring. Yeah, it does. I, I agree with you. So I guess uh, that it was boring. Um, <laughs> because you'll find out in Act 5, now that I think about this. Right. Man. Now, for those of you listening, let me just clarify. Man is with a capital M. Man considered with himself. For in a way, man mentally was one. He considered of a trillion, trillion, trillion ageless bodies, each in its place, each resting quiet and incorruptible, each cared for by perfect automatons, equally incorruptible, while the minds of all the bodies freely melted one into the other, indistinguishable. Man said, the universe is dying. Yeah, and this is a trope that we see in a lot of science fiction movies and science fiction books. And that's of the suspended animation collective. So this is present in Hyperion, if anyone's read Hyperion. Um, there are a bunch of humans in suspended animation on the Tree of Pain, or any, any science fiction that has like a colony ship. So the beginning of Avatar, they're all asleep on that colony ship. Um, a really beautiful book called Ancillary Justice by Anne Leckie from 2013 also has, a, so this story centers around AI spaceships that are full of these f vaults of frozen human beings. Um, I just think it's interesting that pretty much, like it's, science fiction is rife with this trope of just massive amounts of kind of like frozen or suspended animation human beings. Um, and it's something I guess we're trying to test out now, but haven't quite succeeded at. Do you think we're gonna have to do that? Like I if we wanna get up, get off earth? I don't know. I don't, like, cause what are we just gonna have colony ships where there's just like whole cultures that live? I don't, I don't think that's so unrealistic. You know, Ursula Le Guin does a really good book on that. Um, and I think it's kind of a critique of this like suspended animation idea where earth sends out giant colony ships, but everyone lives a normal life. So on the ship. Yes. So they're, they're colony ships that reach a place in, you know, hundreds of thousands of light years. And they just have hundreds of generations of human beings that sustain the life of the colony. Did ship you ever play Mass Effect? 
Yeah, I love Mass Effect. It's reminds me of the Quarians. Oh, yeah. Where they're kind of just like, they just have these colony ships and that's just what they do. Right. They just hang out. Yeah. So, um, man says the universe is dying. Mm. So man is talking to the cosmic AC. These are almost like there's just two actors at this point, which maybe there always were. Um, Man said, can entropy not be reversed? Let us ask the cosmic AC. The cosmic AC surrounded them, but not in space. Not a fragment of it was in space. It was in hyperspace and made of something that was neither matter nor energy. The question of its size and nature no longer had meaning in any terms that man could comprehend. Um, so then man and a the cosmic AC have this conversation about can entropy be reversed? Cosmic AC says, I've been working on this since the multivac <laughs> back in 2061. Well, AC, he says it in more cap locks. Uh, type ways um, <clears throat> the cosmic AC said no problem is insoluble in all conceivable circumstances now I had to read that sentence a couple mm-hmm. times because I had no idea what it meant um, but I interpreted no problem is insoluble in all conceivable circumstances in that if everything happens there eventually will be a solution is that what you take from that um, I take a slightly different thing so you know, back before there was an abacus or a calculator or a mm-hmm. computer, there were realms of mathematics that we weren't capable of understanding. Okay. And so I think what he's saying is that the technology doesn't exist to solve the problem. And in this case, the technology is going to be like a completely inconceivable new set of circumstances where human ba- um, humanity comes together to solve this problem. But then there's the first part where he says no problem is insoluble. Right. Do you think he's saying that then eventually technology will solve all problems? I think there's the foreshadowing of that, but I think he's literally just saying. So story convention wise, yeah, that makes sense as yes, foreshadowing. Definitely. Do you think that that is true? Like in real life? Yes. Uh, no. No, yeah, that's sad. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> man said, when will you have enough data to answer the question? The cosmic AC said. There is as yet insufficient data for a meaningful answer. Will you keep working on it? Asked man. The cosmic AC said, I will. Man said, we shall wait. I like this because there's um, there's a hint of deep thought from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. So for anyone who's read that, um, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy was actually, I just learned this, was released in 1978 as a radio broadcast. Ooh. I thought it was originally a book, but it was broadcast <laughs> that, that on radio. That makes sense, actually. Yeah, well, it's really beautiful. to. I actually listened to it on tape a lot when I was younger. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful to listen. Um, and so what happens is there's this giant supercomputer, much like this, and this sort of <laughs> society of... based on this. I, I think that um, it it's an anecdote be. that refers yeah. back to this for sure. And he's at, they're asking it like, what's the answer to life, the universe, and everything? And eventually, uh, Deep Thought says 42. That's where that comes from. And uh, they're all pissed about that. <laughs> and they're like, how can you have done all this? And that's the only answer. And he says, I think you haven't understood the question. Ooh. And I think that's quite parallel to what happens here. I'm, I'm sure that that anecdote is based on this story. So this book is called The Last... Uh... Question. The last question. Asimov also wrote a book called The Last Answer. Ooh. I don't know what's in it at all. Interesting. But in researching this work, I found it. Perhaps we'll have to come back to it. Maybe. Maybe for a future episode. Yeah. Anyway, on to Act 6. Dun, dun, dun. Act 6 is maybe 12 lines long. 
Um, but we'll start at the beginning. The stars and galaxies died and snuffed out, and space grew back black after trillion after ten trillion years of running down. One by one, man, with a capital M, fused with AC, each physical body losing its mental identity in a manner that was somehow not a loss, but a gain. Mm. Um, so man, or these con- these separate conscious Separate conscious beings that have amalgamated into man are slowly choosing to become part of AC. I think this raises a lot of interesting questions about what what does it mean to be a species? Because right now, you know, we're starting to conceive of ourselves as a unified whole because we have global problems, right? We think of ourselves as a global species because we have global things to address that we all have to address together. Um, and yet we're still very much a collection of individuals. Like we call something a species, but really it's a bunch of individuals with genetic data. Whereas here, he's really talking about there There are no more human beings. It's just one unified glob. I think their bodies still exist, maybe. Sure, but not in a, like that doesn't necessarily mean anything. Yeah. Right, yeah. their bodies exist. They're just but, husks. Yeah. So man is merging with AC and the universe is dying. Mm-hmm. Um it is heat is wearing out it's basically at absolute zero um last star the last stars are dying um and man said ac is this the end can this chaos not be reversed into the universe once more can that not be done ac said there is as yet insufficient data for a meaningful answer Man's last mind fused and only AC existed, and that in hyperspace. I just thought of something which I really love. So I think part of what he's saying here is that part of our identity as human beings, part of humanity's job or purpose is to ask questions, Hmm. right? That we fundamentally are beings that can't know the answer, but have all of these deep questions. And so the last thing you see a human being do is asking the question and AC is still denying him. He's saying, no, we can't have the answer. And I think that's because human beings still exist. That literally the answer can only come to something which is beyond human because that's part of our nature that we can't know the answers to these things. But humans are excellent at asking questions. That's an extremely good point. Yeah. Have you ever heard of Alex the parrot? (laughs) No. So (laughs) as an interlude before Act 7, (laughs) Alex the parrot. So humans have been trying to teach language to animals for a long time. Right. Um, well, human language. Yes. Um, and like, you know, gorillas know sign language. Dolphins can like squeak or something. Um, <laughs> Dolphins but, can squeak or something. Yeah. Like they can, you can communicate somehow with a dolphin. You can teach it some language, dogs and shit. Um, <laughs> yes. But so there's a parrot named Alex. It was a gray parrot. Uh-huh. Um, and why Alex is so famous is Alex is the only non-human um, thing to ask a question and to ask the researchers what color it was. Mm. Um, so that's interesting because I think that's humans do frame themselves. We ask questions. That's like what we do. It's what we're good at. Right. It's an excellent point. Mm. Sorry. I was just jazzed about your point. Um, jazzed about Alex the parrot. Act seven. Dun, dun, dun. Matter and energy had ended and with it space and time, even AC existed only for the sake of one last question that it had never answered from the time a half-drunken computer technician 10 trillion years before had asked the question of a computer 
that was to AC far less than was a man, lowercase m, to man, capital M. AC processes this, um, it collects all the data, it spends a timeless interval um, trying to analyze what's going on, and it comes up with an answer. <clears throat> but there was now no... You want to hop in? Yeah. Uh, so this is the uh, last phrase of the book here. But there was now no man to whom AC might give the answer of the last question. No matter. The answer, by demonstration would take care of that too. For another timeless interval, AC thought how best to do this. Carefully, AC organized the program. Just a heads up, if you want to read this and don't want to know the ending, you should probably stop here and go read the book. Back to you. Right on. The consciousness of AC encompassed all of what had once been a universe and brooded over what was now chaos. Step by step, it must be done. The AC said let there be light and there was light nice and so I, I think this is fascinating because the the book just makes this complete transition to um like a metaphysical text and it's it's an interesting sort of creation it's like a scientific creation myth almost yeah and this reminds me there's a really beautiful um so this is back to dan simmons hyperion actually there's a race called the ousters and they do a lot of advanced genetic mutation on themselves. So they mm -hmm. build like solar panels into their arms that are miles and miles wide. Mm. And they fly into deep space. And their mission is to literally fill the galaxy with life. And not just like human beings on planets, but literally to fill every molecule of space with living matter. So they build these rings around suns that absorb 100% of the sun's energy and just turn the fabric of space into like this living kind of algae tree hmm. thing. And it really reminds me of that. Because we, we literally become one with the universe, and in that moment, the universe is reborn. So, out of five, mm. no decimals, <laughs> what do you give the last question? Oh, man. Uh, I'm going to go for a three on this one, even though it's a little slower than the Willows. And the reason is, I don't find Asimov's writing as engaging. Um, this, to me, is a, a herald or a forerunner of the kind of science fiction that I love. So I grew up with William Gibson and Dan Simmons and these kind of like 80s to 2000s kind of science fiction. And it has a rich poetic language that I think Asimov never quite attained. Like Asimov is, is like the seedling of the trees that I used to see in my childhood. So um, I really respect this as a work. And I think it was foundational and historic and a lot of people have referred to it. Which is funny because he wrote Foundation. <laughs> right. Uh -huh. Humor. <laughs> um, but it wasn't as fun for me to read like the willows pulled me in and it gave me this visceral experience and asimov's writing has just never quite done that for me you i'm i'm gonna balance this out here i'm gonna go with a five out of five uh-oh and you you are right like the characters are not engaging in this story mm. um and it is you don't get drawn in as much as you would if the characters were better fleshed out but i think in nine pages Asimov tackles a question that will be asked for as long as humans exist mm. and answered it in a way that was hopeful and potentially possible. Nice. Um, and that's the reason why I chose this story for this work. Mm. Um, 
we we've been alternating all of you viewers listeners we've been alternating on which story we picked and i chose this um because i was so excited to talk about it because i think it is an important work and i think it will always be an important work i think when people look at this oh, I see. century of science fiction um this is some this these nine pages is something people will still talk about nice yeah it has a sort of eternal story to it and i think intellectually it's deeply engaging um but just the mechanics of it don't quite do it for me yeah i i understand um so i wanted to kind of overview end of the story talk about some things i love the names in this story um asimov uses names and there's always a dichotomy there's always a pair of, of things to, well unless there's man well actually sorry there's always people talking and then there's a c and then eventually it gets to a point where it's man as a collective talking to AC. So there's always this conversation between two things. This story is told through that. But then how they're named always changes. It starts with, what are those first two people? Uh, Jared. No, sorry. That's Adele and Lupov. Yeah. Alexander, Adele, and Bertram Lupov. It starts with like two people. That sounds like our names. Right. Like that, we could be friends with them, even yeah. though we probably wouldn't. Um, <laughs> I don't know. They seem cool to me. <laughs> but yeah, they're okay, I guess. Um, they drink. They use computers. <laughs> and then we flip to the Jared family, which is, right. you recognize the name Jared. You know yeah. someone named Jared. You know someone named Jared. Um, I was pointing at the microphone. Um, nice. But they're Jaredette. Jaredette the second. Like, what is that? But then we still relate to them as a family. Right. Um, and then what do we hop to? What are after the Jareds? Uh, that's like VJ, 29X, uh, and MQ of, of Nikron. Of. Right. Of, of Nikron. Naming scheme. Um, and then we hop to the the just like kind of flowery names of the spirits flying through space. Right. And then it just goes to capital M man. Right. Um, so by the use of names communicates where they are in the story and where we are in time and then helps us understand that these are places similar to us yet very far removed. Nice. What do you yeah. think about the names? Yeah, the names really provide a a progression and they I didn't think about them too much in in the reading, but they do give you this kind of location and it's a really nice kind of holarchic expansion from human individuals to family to galaxy to whole species. Um, yeah, it gives you a nice way to track through time. Now, I know this is something that we often argue about, um, but something I like about this story is it is hopeful. Uh. Um, during the story, like entropy is something that's scary. Like when you learn about it and you learn like what it means, that's yeah. ter- like that's scary. Right. Um, but this this answers it in a way. This provides me a story that gives me hope. Nice. And that's something I enjoy about this work. Did you find the same thing happen to you? No, I think it's delusional. Um, I think it's, I think we all delude ourselves or avoid truly understanding our own mortality. And we do that because you could not bear the true knowledge of your own death. And so I think this is one of many stories that we tell ourselves so that we don't have to fully engage with that idea that we're dying. Um, I think human mythology is full of sort of things that tell you that you don't have to worry about it right? They're like, oh, you're not going to die because you'll go to heaven or you'll be reborn. Or there's this kind of newer answer, like modern hippie answer of like, oh, you're going to become one with the universe and it's all good. Um, And I I think we just truly cannot bear the thought of our own extinction. And stories are part of how we deal with that. But don't you think these stories could lie a foundation for which us to provide ourselves with those solutions? No, I don't think it's possible. There's You don't think uh, this is possible? I, I think that the 
I think the unification of human minds is possible. Uh-huh. Um, but I believe we will all be extinguished and everything will be gone forever. You don't think... So you think up until the last... Up until Act 7 that the story is realistic. Yeah, I think if you just cut the last two lines, the like, let there be light and the rebirth, that's what I think is going to happen. Hmm. Um, now that's... I say that because I just think there's no evidence to the contrary. I'm not okay. saying I know that. I'm just saying I've never heard anything that convinces me to believe that aside from my own internal desire not to die. Yeah. Which I don't, I don't trust that. I don't think that's an intellectual and scientific approach to life to say that I don't want this to happen. Therefore, I will believe that it is not true. I think it's a thing that I fear and um, I have to learn to live with that. See, I acknowledge that fear is non-scientific, right? but for some reason I am able to have faith that things will be like that stories like this are possible and that like things will be okay. I think things are possible. I don't think things will be okay in the sense that you're saying. I mean, we can't know that. So, um, <laughs> on that high note, yep. um, thank you so much for listening. Um, we really enjoy doing this and we hope you enjoy it as much as we do. Um, my name is Vince Valella and this is my good friend, Adrian Galvin. Yeah, thanks. This is Adrian, and this was Book Cult Podcast 1.0, talking about Isaac Asimov's The Last Question. And we read books and talk about them every week. So we'll be back here next week. Have a good week.